Still trying to get used to this uh, procedure of having a call to worship, uh, opening hymn and invocation, and boom, it's time, time for the sermon. Uh, last week, we looked at the last portion of chapter 4 of Romans, and if you will recall, I said if we have time and if God is willing that I would uh, begin the first portion of chapter 5. But those who were here last week know that God was not willing, and so we didn't begin to look at uh, the start of chapter 5. So tonight, I also said at the end of the message last week that I wanted to speak just a little bit further on the last line of chapter 4, and I plan to do that this evening, and it is still my earnest hope that the Lord would be willing that we'd be able to begin with chapter 5. And so trusting in that divine benevolence, I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 5 tonight, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 5. So I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith unto this grace in which we stand, and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, and not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Beloved, in these few verses that I've just read consists in summary form the whole of the sweetness of the gospel that we've been studying. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, stoop from Your divine glory, lisp to us as babes, condescend to our low estate, that You would help us to see just a little bit more of the glory of the gospel that we've been studying. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Before, if ever, we get to chapter 5, let me comment a little further on the last section of chapter 4 that we looked at last week. Verse 23 reads, Now it was not written for his sake alone, that is for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us 
It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, we've been looking relentlessly, I hope, at the central importance of the doctrine of imputation. And I've tried to say to you that the idea of the imputation of the merit of Christ, of His righteousness to our account, is at the very heart of the gospel, and without that imputation, we have lost everything. It is only by His righteousness that we have any standing in the presence of God at all. And so I have been laboring the point in recent weeks, using Abraham as the Apostle Paul does as the prime example of the nature of this imputation, reaching back to Genesis 15 when God made His promise to Abraham, and we read Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we saw that this idea of imputation, this reckoning, this counting, this transferring from one person's account to another is of the very essence of salvation. Now, I mentioned also that in our salvation there is a double imputation. And I'll remind you of that again this evening, that on the one hand, in Christ's work for us in His atoning death upon the cross, that God reckoned or imputed our sin to Him in His death. So, when we say that Jesus died for us, we mean by that that His death was vicarious, that He was doing something for us in our place, acting as our substitute, and that God accepted the transfer or the reckoning or the imputation of our guilt to His Son. But I said also, if you recall, that this imputation is dual in the sense that not only is our sin reckoned to Christ, transferred or imputed to His account, but His righteousness is imputed to us. He gets our guilt, we get His merit. And in this double transfer, this double imputation is the great benefit of the redemption that Christ has won for us. And so, it would seem almost that once we have that double imputation by virtue of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, that that would be sufficient to secure our justification. Not so fast. There is still one more element that we have not yet addressed, and that is the resurrection of Christ. Because Paul introduces the idea here at the end of the fourth fourth chapter, at the middle of the first century, 
I have the fourth century on my mind these days, and I'll tell you why in a few moments. But at the end of the fourth century, again he said, it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. There's the introduction of this matter of the resurrection. And then we read at the end of that common comma, who was delivered up because of our offenses, as our substitute, and was raised because of our justification. Interesting statement, isn't it? That Christ was raised for our justification. We could understand how the apostle would say that Jesus was raised for His justification, that is, for His vindication, to declare to the whole world His innocence, His righteousness, that His conviction by this earthly court of accusers was a false and fraudulent conviction. And where men said no to Jesus, the Father said yes and refused to allow death to hold Him. And so it would make sense plainly, wouldn't it, that Jesus was raised for His vindication, for His justification. And indeed, that is also an essential element of the resurrection of Jesus. But here Paul is saying that Christ was raised for our justification. So I ask you, what does that mean? Having raised the question, let's go on now then to chapter 5, of, and I'll let you wrestle with the answer to that question. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. To understand this, we want to take a few moments to revisit what happened on the cross, what happens in our redemption. And on other occasions, for those of you who are members and have been here for a while at St. Andrews, know that I have preached on more than one occasion about the atoning death of Jesus. And I've used an illustration uh, from past theological inquiry, and not so much an illustration. I used the illustration to illustrate a very important distinction about our situation as sinners before a righteous God, as debtors who cannot pay their debt. And I've noticed that the language of the New Testament with respect to our condition of guilt before God is often expressed in this category of indebtedness. So then we ask the question, what is the nature of the debt that we owe God because of our sin. And if you will recall, I made the distinction, as the church fathers did, between a moral debt and a pecuniary debt. A pecuniary debt is a monetary or financial debt. You understand what a pecuniary debt is when you get a statement 
at the end of the month from some vendor or from your bank or from whoever's loaned you money to buy your house that tells you you owe X number of dollars. That debt must be paid, and that debt is a monetary debt. That's not the same thing as a moral debt. And in order to illustrate the difference between a pecuniary debt and a moral debt, I told you the simple illustrative uh, story of a young boy who goes into the ice cream parlor and orders an ice cream cone from the waitress and wants two scoops of ice cream on the cone. And then the waitress scoops the two scoops and puts them on the cone, hands it to the little boy, and says to him, that will be two dollars. Then you see the lips start to quiver on the face of the little boy, and he says to the woman, but my mommy only gave me a dollar. You see, he has a problem. He now owes two dollars for the ice cream cone, but he only has one dollar. Now, I'm standing there watching this drama unfold in front of me. So what do I do? I do the same thing that any one of you would do in that situation. You say to the waitress, excuse me, ma'am, if it would be all right with you, I'd be happy to make up the difference between what the little boy has and what he needs. So I produce the second dollar. Now, my question is, is that woman who's running the store under any obligation to accept the dollar that I offer to her? Yes, she is. Because the debt is a pecuniary debt. And I am offering her the legal tender. And legal tender means she must accept it in payments of debts. And I am perfectly legally able to step forward and pay this young boy's debt. And she, who is the one who is owed the money, must accept the debt. But let's change the story just a little bit. We're now we're standing in line at the ice cream counter, and this young boy runs in, grabs a cone, runs behind the counter, scoops up two scoops of ice cream on his cone, and starts running out the door with the waitress in pursuit, calling for the police, saying, stop thief, and the policeman on the corner sees what happens, grabs the urchin by the scruff of his neck, brings him back into the store and said, is this the boy? Did he do something? Yes, he just stole two scoops of ice cream. Not to mention the cone. (laughs) And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, take it easy. I'm watching this. I say, officer, ma'am, let's just forget about this. And I reach in my pocket. Now I take out $2. And I hand the $2 to the waitress. 
And I'll say, now the boy's debt is paid. Can we just all go home and forget about this? The policeman says, ma'am, you don't have to accept that money. This boy's broken the law. He's violated the law. He's guilty of petty larceny, at least. Would you like to press charges? And the woman has every right under the law to press charges and is no under no obligation whatsoever to accept my vicarious payment of the little boy's debt. Do you understand that? Now, if she's a gracious person and merciful, she may say to the officer, no, it's okay. Let him go. I'll accept payment for his debt by this gentleman here who's offered to be a substitute payee or payer in this case. She has the option of accepting my payment, but she's not bound by my offer. Do you see the difference? When a moral transgression has taken place, when there is a moral debt, the person who is the one offended by that immoral act is under no obligation to accept the payment of a substitute in behalf of the guilty. A Christ lays down his life for his sheep on the cross. He offers himself in his perfect righteousness in his perfect innocence, taking upon himself the sin of his people and offers his death to the Father. Now, if Jesus died on the cross for your sins and stayed dead, you would have no justification. But when the Father raises the Son from the dead, He says to the world, I accept this payment for these debtors who cannot pay. And so the the resurrection of Jesus is not simply for His vindication, but it is for our justification because it is God's demonstration to His unjust people to those debtors who cannot pay, that he accepts the payment in full for the moral debt that has been incurred by us. You know, we make the distinction in theology between the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. We've been looking at the act of obedience for several weeks, that Jesus' perfect obedience to the law of God was such that He earned for Himself by His own merit 
by his righteousness, eternal felicity with the Father in the Father's kingdom. He fulfilled all of the terms of God's covenant with man, the promise for which was blessedness. And by his perfect obedience, eternal blessedness was the reward of Jesus. It is that reward that he trades for our sin. His perfect act of obedience is then followed by his perfect passive obedience when he submits himself to the curse of the law and the curse of the wrath of the Father by willingly bearing our sins upon the cross. In his life, he shows his act of obedience. In his death, he manifests his passive obedience. And both active and passive obedience are essential for our justification. Now, this week, I've been thoroughly enjoying reading John Piper's most recent book entitled, Contending for Our All, in which uh, Dr. Piper points out that every Christian is called to profess faith in Christ, and we are not only called to profess our faith in Christ, but we are called to defend the faith of Christ to the world around us. But beyond the responsibility of professing faith and defending the faith, we're called to contend for the faith. And that's where many Christians get off the boat. They say, I'll profess my faith and I'll even defend it, but don't ask me to contend for it. Don't ask me to get in the arena and fight for the truths of the gospel. I mean, our culture, you know, constantly tells us doctrine divides. Let us not contend about the truth of God. Doesn't the Bible say that we're not to be contentious? Yes, we're not to have the spirit of contentious where we fight over every point of doctrine, where we want to engage in battle at the drop of a hat. No, no, no. But where the gospel is under siege in any generation, there where the controversy is hot and the truth of the gospel is at stake, every Christian is called to contend with all of his might for our all. It's a great book that I've been reading from Dr. Piper, and what he does is he gives a cameo examination of three great contenders for the faith through Christian history, beginning with Athanasius, whose tombstone read, Athanasius contra mundum. No single individual in church history fought longer and harder for the church's affirmation of the full deity of Christ than did St. Athanasius 
who was exiled time after time after time after time because of the Arian heretics who sought to destroy him. But they could not silence him because he was contending for the whole of the gospel in the person of Christ. The second person that Piper studies in this book is John Owen, the Puritan, the English Puritan, the 17th century, who many believe is the most brilliant writer of Christian truth ever to grace the world. That is the most brilliant writer in the Christian or in the English language. And many others rank him second to Jonathan Edwards, and I would rank him second to Jonathan Edwards, but people will argue forever about who was greater, John Owen or Jonathan Edwards. It really is a moot point. It doesn't matter. The point is that both of them were giants that God gave to the church, and both entered into controversy where essential truths of the gospel were at stake. They contended with their all for our all. And it is a wonderful thing to see these examples of men in history who suffered greatly. Perhaps the closest friend that John Owen had in his ministry was John Bunyan. John Owen was a brilliant scholar, an academician, the head of Oxford, and then the chief lieutenant to Oliver Cromwell. And he had the ear of all of those in high places, including Charles II at the time of the Restoration, where John Bunyan was a tinker, uneducated, totally committed to the truths of the gospel. At one point, the king, Charles II, asked why it was that John Owen was seeking the release from prison of this lowly tinker. Charles said to John Owen, why would you show any concern at all for this man who's so poorly educated? John Owen said, I would trade all of the knowledge I had, if it would please your majesty, if I could just preach once like John Bunyan. And all the efforts that John Owen went to to get Bunyan released from prison failed. He wrote everybody he knew. He tried to persuade everyone in high places. He put his own reputation on the line to get Bunyan out of jail. Nothing worked. And finally, when Bunyan was released from prison, he came out with a manuscript that he had written while he was in isolation entitled Pilgrim's Progress. The number one book in terms of all-time best sales of the Christian and of the English uh, language is the Bible. In second place, Pilgrim's Progress. John Owen was glad 
that in the providence of God, his efforts to get Bunyan released prematurely ended in failure. Then the third person that John Piper examines in this book, Contending for Our All, is J. Gresham Machen. Many of you have probably never heard of J. Gresham Machen. He died on the 1st of January, 1937. He died before I was born. He was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was the one who brought the uh, elite, the theological elite from Princeton Seminary to found this new seminary in Philadelphia to keep the Reformed faith alive in America. At the age of 55, during a Christmas break in the December of 1936, Machen was invited to travel by train, this is in the 30s, of course, from Philadelphia to Bismarck, North Dakota, to do a couple of of preaching assignments in little churches out there in the Dakotas. And his friends on the faculty at Westminster who knew that his health was frail profoundly urged him not to make this arduous journey. They said, take the Christmas holidays to get some rest. You need it, Dr. Machen. But he wouldn't listen. He got on the train, and he traveled all the way to North, North Dakota. And when he arrived, he became ill, stricken with pneumonia, which illness proved to be fatal. He died, as I said, on the first day of January, 19. 37, 7.30 in the evening. Before Machen died, the last thing that we know he ever wrote was a telegram to his good friend who was on the faculty with him at Westminster Seminary, Professor John Murray. Many of you have heard of John Murray. Many of you who are studying Romans perhaps have read his classic commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. And the fact that Murray was involved in this transaction had some personal interest to me inasmuch as though I was born after Machen died, I was alive when Murray was teaching at Westminster, and I met him on more than one occasion. And when he retired and married at the age of 70 and bore two children after he was 70 years old, when he returned to his native Scotland. The last thing that he wrote for publication was an essay that was part of a compilation of essays that that was presented to Dr. John Gerstner, my mentor, on the occasion of a feshrif for that professor, and I was the editor of that particular undertaking, and so it was to my hands that was delivered the last written document from John Murray. So that's my little link to this history here that I get excited about because the last statement of Machen was to Murray, and the last thing that Murray wrote came to me. So that's my link to Machen, my only link, I guess. 
But in that telegram, listen to the words of the telegram. The man's dying. He writes to his friend by the telegram, John, I'm so thankful for active obedience of Jesus. Stop. No hope without it. On his deathbed, Machen was thinking of the perfect active obedience of Jesus. Which act of obedience was the sole ground for the justification of J. Gresham Machen and the sole ground for your justification? You know, it's one thing to study theology in the abstract. When the end of your life comes and you know that you are dying, to find joy and the perfect act of obedience of Jesus is the mark of a true saint. It's glorious to read these stories from people like that. Oh, that God would raise up more contenders of the faith in our day like these men from the past. Having said that, let's now press onward to the fifth chapter of Romans. For in the fullness of time, God in His mercy has allotted me six minutes (laughs) to look at this. The first thing I want us to see about the beginning of chapter 5 is the word therefore. You've heard me say this before, that in the original texts of Scripture, there were no chapters, there were no verses. When you write letters to people, you don't write verse 1, verse 2, chapter 1. These chapters, I'm sure, were written by some itinerant preacher on horseback when he was falling asleep in the saddle. Because why would anybody start a chapter with the word therefore? Therefore signifies a conclusion and is tied inseparably to what has just preceded it. And so now the Apostle Paul is not turning to a new subject. He's still treating this whole doctrine of justification that he has been expounding throughout the epistle to this point. Now he's coming to an extremely important conclusion. Having said all of the things that he said about our justification being by faith, not by works, using Abraham as his exhibit A, now he gets down to the bottom line. Therefore, therefore what? Having been justified by faith, comma, Now, we could say that the whole Reformation was fought over that clause because in the Roman Catholic Church, remember, you're not justified until you possess inherent righteousness, which inherent righteousness can elude you your entire life 
forcing you to a detour between this world and heaven of a stay in purgatory that can last millions of years. There's no such thing as a justification that's a fait accompli that has taken place and can never be lost in this world or in the next. Again, for Rome, you have to be sanctified before you can be justified, where the biblical doctrine is justification takes place, and then the rest of our lives we're involved in the process of sanctification. But notice how the apostle talks here. Therefore, having been justified. You see, Paul is looking at the doctrine of justification as something that has already taken place, just as he said with Abraham. Abraham was justified in chapter 15, seven chapters before he ever offered up Isaac on the altar. And the great truth of that, beloved, the great therefore that gives us to the conclusion is that we can be justified now. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ do not have a prolonged wait for their justification. The moment, moment you believe in Jesus, the second you put your trust in Him, God declares you just once and for all. Having been justified refers to something, an action that is in the past. It's accomplished. The work of Christ is finished He has secured the justification of all who put their faith in Him by His death and by His resurrection. So the point that we have to see here in the text is that justification is a past action that you received at the moment you believe. Now the question is, what are the consequences What is the fruit of that justification? What are the benefits of that justification? Having been justified by faith, what? You're going to have to tune in next Sunday night (laughs) to find out what, because the benefits are so great, so marvelous that I hope you'll begin to ask that question, what what do I gain from my justification? Before I close, let me just say this. I'll never forget the first time I preached on Romans 5, 1 through 5. I preached in 1972 to a women's, women's association in an extremely wealthy church comprised of up and out of it, uh, up and outers we call them, very wealthy, very, very wealthy. I'm talking Mellons and Hillmans, that kind of wealthy. In a high Episcopal church, they invited me to lecture to them about biblical doctrine, and so I lectured to them on Romans 5, chapter 1 through 5. And I lectured my heart out 
And I knew when I walked out of the room, those people had no idea what I was talking about. Because I was talking to them about the chief benefit of our justification being peace with God. But you see, these people couldn't get excited about a peace treaty with God because they didn't know that there was a war on. But anybody who's been convicted of their sin by the Holy Ghost knows that there's a war that can only be won by the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're going to look at that benefit that He wins for us in our justification, God willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, may our dying words say how thankful we are for the act of obedience of Christ. For without it, we have no hope. But with it, we have a hope that cannot be ashamed. We thank you, God, for our Savior, for his righteousness, for his atonement, and for his justification in our behalf. 